Good afternoon, everyone. This is Greg Lois. Today is July 19th, and our topic today is defenses to temporary disability. And we're also going to talk about uh, what's going on with labor market attachment as a defense. So thanks for jumping in. Uh, I know uh, it's a nice, beautiful, warm, sunny summer day out there, uh, and you've got other things to do. So I'm going to try to make this uh, as useful as I can. And what I'm going to attempt to do is go really quickly through the stuff that I think you probably already know, uh, which is the temporary disability stuff, uh, the basics. And I want to talk about what's new, uh, which is what's going on in the world of labor market attachments. So thanks for jumping in. Uh, if you're with us for the first time, uh, this is our monthly workers' compensation webinar series. This is a very 101 level series, but I often try to bring in stuff that's new or updated or, or stuff that's happening right now so that we can make this timely and relevant. So I am going to talk a little bit about when you pay temporary disability, what is temporary partial disability, when to begin paying, how you pay, how much to pay, when you can stop paying. And that's really the key because once we're pushing someone off of temporary disability, now it's time to start talking about resolving that case or pushing it towards a section 32 lump sum dismissal. And that's really our goal uh, for these matters. So how do we get there? And what can we do with labor market attachment? The board has suspended labor market attachment as a tactic for the last year and a half, and now it's back. So this is great news, and I have some practice pointers to share with everybody. So uh, thanks for joining me today. This is a totally live webinar, so please ask questions. I can see questions um, jump up on the screen, and so when I see those questions, I will wait till the end. I will read your question out loud so everybody can hear it, and then I will answer it the best I can. So uh, feel free to ask me questions uh, today. All right, so uh, first I'm gonna start with a bit of a commercial. Uh, our firm is proud to support the Challenged Athletes Foundation. Uh, this is a great foundation which really helps disabled athletes and people of all ages. They work with kids, they work with uh, adults, uh, they work with everyone uh, to try to get disabled people back into competitive sports. And they do this primarily by uh, grants, uh, by paying uh, for things like assisted devices, uh, you know, a basketball wheelchair, as you see in this picture, uh, they pay for prosthetics, they pay for a lot of entry fees, travel, all sorts of great stuff. So uh, really a great uh, uh, charity and a great foundation. They're doing great work. And it really does, I think, align with our mission here, which is to get people back to work. And we all know that one of the barriers to getting people back to work is mainly psychosocial. Uh, it's that feeling of disengagement, the feeling that they're a victim, the feeling that they can't do anything anymore. And, you know, maybe they can't work. Maybe they, maybe it's impossible. At least they can uh, experience the, the fun and excitement of participating in sports and that kind of stuff. So great charity. Uh, this year, our, our uh, firm is sponsoring a fun event. We're going to do a run walk uh, for the uh, Challenged Athletes Foundation. It's going to be on September 25th. Everybody can join. You're welcome to come. Uh, this is a fundraiser. Uh, and we do have a live page where we are uh, raising money. And we've raised about $2,000 towards our $10,000 goal. Uh, $10,000 is enough to buy four uh, uh, wheelchairs, uh, uh, basketball wheelchairs, which is something we're, we're trying to do. Uh, you can use this uh, QR code, which is on your screen right now, and go right to the fundraising page. I've also put it in today's uh, webinar chat. Uh, and you can join our team that would register you for the event. Or you can just click donate now and uh, you know I'm going to challenge everybody every dollar that's donated to the Challenge Athletes Foundation uh, we are going to match it uh, so we're going to be matching all of those dollars so all the dollars you see on that uh, foundation page we're doubling that for them 
running all the way up until the time of our event. So, hey, if you're around North Jersey, it's only 20 minutes from downtown New York City uh, in September, please join our event. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a reception at a brewery afterwards and a food truck. It's going to be a lot of fun, so please come. Uh, if not, uh, you know, maybe just tell some friends, hey, challenged athletes, they could use some help, and, and we're happy to help them, and that's a great charity to be involved in. Uh, anybody out there who is interested in sponsoring, we still have room on the T-shirts for the event, so if you want your logo on the T-shirts, talk to me, and we'll get you a sponsorship as well. All right, so that's the commercial. Let me jump into this week's topic, topic which is uh, temporary disability and, and how do we uh, challenge it. So just some basics. New York does have a seven-day waiting period. New York also has something called payer compliance rules in which they will penalize you as the carrier if you are not issuing payments within either 10 days of the uh, uh, employer had knowledge of the event or 18 days after the actual accident. So, you know, we've got to be really careful about that. And most of our clients are just going ahead and paying at the minimum rate to avoid penalties uh, under that payer compliance set of rules. So if you're having any issues with that, please contact me uh, and we'll talk to you about how you can get past those payer compliance penalties and what kind of things you can do and put in place. We know it's really challenged to get uh, sometimes accident reports from a location, particularly if you're the carrier and you've got a mom and pop location or mom and pop insured, and they're not the greatest communicators in the world. And, you know, 15, 20 days go by before they tell you somebody's been missing from the workplace after they sustained an accident, and that will set up the carrier for a penalty. So something to be mindful of. All right, how much do we pay? Well, New York's uh, benefit is based on two-thirds of the average weekly wage. So obviously, determining the average weekly wage is key. I'm going to talk about that in the next slide. There are maximums and minimums. The minimum currently is $150 per week, and the maximum keeps changing. It just changed again on July 1st. Uh, of 2021. The maximum is now $1,063.05. Uh, that's per week. Uh, so we're really talking about wage earners who make more than about $1,500 per week. Uh, they're going to start getting hurt by that, make less than about $1,500 per week. You're going to be doing better on workers' comp. That max rate changes every year, and this year it changed about $100. It was about $966 three weeks ago. So that's really pumping up there. Uh, we are now, and it went up 10% in just one year. Uh, the reason for that, statistically, if anybody's a nerd out there and is interested, well, they only count wage earners. So if you have what we've experienced the last few years with massive retraction of the labor market, it's going to push up the average weekly wage uh, for those who are still in the labor market. So that's what's happening there. All right. Challenging average weekly wage in, in New York is going to be hugely important to controlling your overall exposure. I just told you in the prior slide that the benefit rate, max rate, just went up 10% this year. And so when your boss is coming to you and saying, hey, uh, how come our workers' comp losses went up so much? Uh, you can look at them and say, well, it's not me. It's that the rates are going up 10% this year. And these, these new losses uh, after July 1, 2021 are just worth 10% more than they were the week before. That's how it is. Uh, so what are things you can control? One of them is taking a really hard look at average weekly wage. Again, the benefit's going to be based on the person's average weekly wage. Our advice is always to use the actual weekly wage. And how do you figure that out? Well, we just take how much we paid them divided by the period we paid it in. I, I like to use what I call straight divisor method. Just really, we're just using division. How many weeks did you work for us? How much did you earn? Okay, take how much you earned divided it by the number of weeks. Really straightforward. Of course, this is New York, so things have to be complicated, and the New York Workers' Compensation Law allows for a multiplication, or what they call multiplier rates, 200 days, 260 days, multiple rates. These will always result 
in a higher average weekly wage. And so our position in this firm is always to fight these multiples. These multipliers are allegedly to be used when the person works four days a week or five days a week. You use either a 200 or a 260 day multiple. Well, the truth is no five day a week worker actually really works 260 days in a year. And that's because, hey, there's 104 uh, weekend days. Plus, even if you're the stingiest employer in the world, there's at least seven days of uh, holidays. Uh, and that doesn't count for paid time off and vacation time and all the other things that would really affect or impact the wage. And so these multipliers really never inure to the benefit of the employer and we always challenge them. All right, uh, New York has a, a law allowing for similar workers to be used. So let's say uh, you've got a, a loss on a work site for a person who only worked there for a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks. You don't really have a full year's worth of wages. You can go find a similar worker. And the trick there is it doesn't have to be a New York similar worker. When calculating average weekly wage, we're gonna to add together all the concurrent employments for the employee, uh, but make sure you're only using New York employments. And that's important because we have got so many people who live in New York and, and work, or live in Connecticut and work in New York, or live in New Jersey and work in New York. Uh, we're only adding up the uh, income that they earn from a New York employment. If they earn the employment uh, money somewhere else, doesn't count towards a concurrent employment. So that's a little tip and trick uh, you can use. All right, terms of art. New York has partial temporary disability benefit. That means if you're less than totally disabled, but we're unable to accommodate your disability, you're gonna get paid something. It's just not gonna be the maximum that you get paid, which is the total rate. So uh, it has all these interesting terms of art. When a doctor in a medical report says the person has a mild disability, that really means a 25% disability. When a doctor says a moderate disability, that means a 50% disability. When a doctor says marked disability, that means 75%. And so you could just determine uh, what their uh, benefit rate would be based on their total rate uh, multiplied by that um, uh, market rate. So that, you know, or that moderate rate or that lesser, um, percentage of disability. It serves to reduce the amount of weekly compensation that's being paid to the claimant. Um, now, we only pay temporary disability for causally related lost time. And there's a lot of reasons why people might have lost time that's got nothing to do with the employment, right? Think about it. How about retirement? Uh, the person's out of work, they're temporarily totally disabled, but they say, you know what? I'm 66 and a half and I'm eligible. I'm retiring. See you guys, bye. All right we no longer have any obligation to pay them temporary total disability anymore. Uh, and that's because they voluntarily removed themselves from the workforce. The second thing is, what about the employee who got hurt, is out on temporary disability, whether it's partial or total, and they decide, you know what, I really don't wanna go back to that business working as a construction laborer or doing this uh, heavy work. And instead, I wanna become a, uh, an artist. And they change their, uh, uh, their profession. And this new profession, they can't make as much money as they did when they were working as a construction laborer. Uh, and now they claim, well, that's the evidence of my disability. Nope, you changed your profession. And for that reason, you, you knew you weren't gonna earn as much money in this new profession. You knew it was maybe riskier or the money was uh, less consistent. You know, maybe there was uh, timing aspects to it. And for that reason, we're not gonna um, increase our benefit payment to you for that. All right, how do we end temporary disability? And really, uh, this is a focus of every case that we're defending when someone is temporarily partially or temporarily totally disabled. How do we get that to end so we can either start talking about resolving the case or just close the case? How, you know, what, what are our next steps? Well, you can always stop paying temporary disability when the person has returned to work full-time, full-duty, and they're earning a wage consistent with what they were earning before. The basics, right? And you can do self-help on that. In fact, if you're an employer 
and you're under a court order and the judge is saying, well, this person's temporarily totally disabled, but they've come back to work for you and they're working their regular job and it's full-time, full duty, guess what? You can just stop paying workers' compensation benefits. It's a limited opportunity there for you to engage in a little self-help and say, thanks, court. I know you ordered me to pay this thing, but I'm not paying it because I know this person is back to work for me full-time, okay? Second thing, you can stop paying temporary disability when the person has reached maximum medical improvement. That's a little bit of a loaded statement because oftentimes we have to litigate the issue of is the claimant uh, at maximum medical improvement or not. And that really doesn't mean are they perfect. It just means there's no more curative care. They're not going to get any better. We're not going to reduce their symptomology and we're not going to reduce their limitations. This is it. This is where they are. They're not getting any better. Now, I'll be frank with you. In New York, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been doing workers' cop law for uh, over 20 years. Uh, it's, in, you know, it's rare to see a treating physician in New York voluntarily say the person has reached maximum medical improvement. They always want to do some more care and maybe refer them to their friends for some testing and some other types of care. So it's going to be rare and we often have to litigate this. But uh, in those rare cases where the treating physician says, oh yeah, he's returned to work and he's fine, he's at maximum medical improvement, fine, good. Uh, or where the person's refusing care. They're saying, I don't want any more treatment. I know you offered me surgery, but I don't want to do that. I'm done. Thank you. Goodbye. That's a, a maximum medical improvement and you can end temporary disability. Next, where the employer can offer accommodated work and the claimant refuses that accommodated work, you can stop paying temporary disability. And this is incredibly powerful. In fact, I tell my self-insured employers, this is the number one way that you can help control costs and loss in your workers' compensation claims. If you can offer some type of meaningful, uh, legitimate, tailored light duty, uh, which uh, accommodates the person's limitations, uh, that's great. Also, some of my employers have said, you know what, we're not even going to bring this person back because we can't. We, you know, it's a construction site, it's a distribution center, it's a warehouse, it's a, it's, a, it's a manufacturing facility. Greg, I can't have people here who can't move quickly or can't move out of the way of something or can hurt themselves even worse. But they place them, for example, at a charity, at another company that can offer accommodated work. That's the great, that's the same thing. Okay, so you're now moving them off of temporary disability. All right, next. Again, we're going to talk about retirement. Okay, this is the circumstance where the person is temporarily disabled, allegedly, uh, and they've decided at some point, I'm going to retire. So uh, that's awesome. You are now no longer exposed for the indemnity component of your workers' compensation liability. And the last, last thing, and this is going to be a focus for the rest of this conversation, is raising the lack of attachment to the workplace as a defense. So let's talk exactly how we do that. Uh, now, attachment was taken away March 20th, 2020, and restored to us June 25, 2021. So again, this is going to be a powerful one, and it's going to be a useful one, and it's going to create leverage, and it's back, baby. It's back. All right, so what does raising lack of attachment mean? Well, first, the claimant has some kind of light duty release. They have some work ability. Now, uh, what does that mean? When I say this person has some workability, it's less than they're less than totally disabled. Greg, what does that mean? How do I prove that? What are the proofs I would need to show? Well, first is obviously they're, if their physician is saying, hey, this person's not totally disabled, they're saying they're moderately disabled, they're saying they're markedly disabled. I'm not saying they're totally disabled. Okay, there you go. Per se, you now can raise attachment and say, hey, you should be looking for a job within your restrictions. The second one is, uh, how about where the physician has given you a concession? during the deposition. You know, we've deposed their doctor. Our doctor says this person's fine, they're ready for the Olympics, they can go to Tokyo, they can compete. And uh, the treating physician says, nope, this person's totally disabled. Oftentimes, we're gonna ask the following question in the deposition. 
doctor, you're saying the claimant is totally disabled. Now, do you mean totally disabled from all work or just the work he was doing or she was doing at the time of loss? Most credible physicians will say, well, I think they could do some kind of work, but they can't do the type of work they were doing at the time of loss. That's your concession. You now have the claimant at less than totally disabled, okay? Um, and sometimes you'll not even have to do a deposition. Sometimes you'll see it in the medical notes themselves. The medical notes themselves will say something like, claimant is 100% disabled from job, from job, meaning from current job. I take that to mean, okay, they're totally disabled from this job, but they can do something, right? All right, so you've got that concession. There's a light duty release. So now what do we do? The employer should either, if they can, make a light duty job offer. And if they can't, they should turn to the claimant and go, hey, we can't offer you a light duty job within your restrictions. I'm sorry. But you've got to go out and get a job within your restrictions. And you, here's a form, the C-258 form. Please report to us how your work search is going. Okay. Now, most of the time, the claimant uh, will say, they'll fight you on that light duty offer, right? I think we've all had that experience where they say, well, they offered me a light duty job and I was sitting there in a chair and I was uh, just watching for security footage or something. I was just sitting there and that was too much for me. I couldn't even sit in the chair. Okay, uh, we'll fight that fight. That's a challenge. Um, but that will, again, tee you up for some leverage, some momentum in the case. The other thing is where they, we can offer light duty. And that's so often, it's so common uh, on occurrence and particularly in the insured context where you know, maybe it's a mom and pop and they really just don't have the management time to set up some kind of light duty job for this person. Forcing the claimant to go out and look for work within their restrictions is a burden for many of these claimants. They don't want to do it. The board said back in March of 2020, well, because of COVID and because we're under executive order 202, the claimant has no obligation to go out and look for work because we really have to stay at home. We've got to wear our masks and we've got to hide out. On June 25th, executive order was rescinded. And that means that all of these limitations, stay at home, travel restrictions, it's all gone now in New York. And so really the claimant's obligation has returned. They must go out and look for work within their restrictions. This is a burden for them and they don't wanna do it. It's summertime, they wanna sit on the couch, drink beer and watch Judge Judy, but it's our job to push a little bit and get them to respond. And you know, some oftentimes this will create the leverage that we can utilize towards a settlement. So what do we do when the claimant uh, refuses to execute a work search? First, uh, we're gonna file an RFA2, that's a request for further action. And we're gonna say, judge, please direct them to do it. And if they still don't do it, judge, suspend payments. They're refusing to look for work. It's per se, you will get a suspension, all right. And that's, that's an opportunity there to get a little leverage or momentum towards closing a case. What about the claimant who goes out and turns in their work search form? And they look like this, okay? It's, it's board form C-258.1, uh, which is the claimant's independent work search uh, form. And on that form, they're supposed to tell us the date they went out and looked for a job, where they looked for a job, who they spoke to, and what the result was, okay? Now, some claimants just go out and they just fill this thing in. They just write down the names of places that they know aren't looking for uh, employees. We'll call those places. You can call every single place on there. Hey, are you hiring? And the person says, no, we're not hiring. Okay, that's not. there's case law that says that's not a valid work search. Great, that's awesome. Uh, we can now challenge that the claimant's work search was invalid. They didn't even try to do it. And the judge should suspend benefits based on the fact that their work search was invalid. Another thing happens. They turn in the C-258 and they said, I look for jobs in all these different places. I tried all these ways. Uh, we will go and follow up sometimes by way of subpoena. 
will subpoena the location and say, hey, uh, did this person uh, leave a resume with you? Did they apply for a job? And they'll say, nope, we have no record of them applying for a job. All right, now we've just showed the judge that the work search was not completed and there may be a credibility or a fraud issue that we have now introduced into the case. So this is an incredibly important tool and one that we rely on at Lois uh, to generate a lot of momentum and chaos in these cases so that we can kind of disrupt uh, the claimant's benefits and try to push the case towards settlement, lever the case towards settlement. All right, you can't do this if your ability to raise labor market attachment has been suspended. The board has now stated, yes, you can raise this argument again. And after August 16th, we'll be requiring claimants to go out and do these independent job searches. But I can tell you, literally the day the executive order was rescinded, my office started filing RFA2s, demanding that the courts direct the claimant to begin this work search right now. We have gotten responses from the board already directing the claimant to begin their work search and have that going going by August 16th, 2021. So we're starting to push ahead on that and get some response from the board. Now, there's other things the claimant has to do beyond just looking for a job. They also have to go and register for a job placement services with the New York State Workforce One, which is really a federal Department of Labor program uh, called Workforce One or One Stop. They've got to go apply for that. It's very simple. They can actually do the whole thing online, but it's really just uh, submitting a resume. You do some career counseling and they give you some leads to follow up on. The claimant has required to do that. Um, I, you know, I tell you many, many times the claimant doesn't even bother to do that. And that's a per se, not doing a valid work search per se, not showing attachment to the labor market. In aggressive cases, particularly those higher exposure cases, it's, you have the option as an employer to offer private uh, placement services or help, uh, maybe uh, creating a resume service, et cetera. To be frank with you, uh, the employment situation right now in New York in particular is such that anybody with a pulse can get a job at this point. I mean, employers are dying for employees. Uh, so you probably don't even have to go into those private services. I can't, I would expect that one stop, um, the state service, would uh, give them many, many leads for them to follow up on because there are just simply a lot of jobs out there that are going currently unfilled. The point of all of this is to provoke a response, okay? Uh, by taking away our ability to raise labor market attachment uh, during the pandemic emergency period, it really took away one of the tools in our toolbox to really push these claims towards closure. As of June 25, 2021, that tool's back in our toolbox, right? So we should be pushing, pushing, pushing hard on labor market attachment. So let's do it. And remember, our, our claimant doesn't want to get up off that couch and they don't want to go out and have to look for a job within their restrictions. But that's our role. We have to push a little bit uh, to get them back and re-engage in the workplace, re-engage in the workforce. And ultimately, it's going to reduce costs in our cases because we'll be able to shrink that period of temporary disability down uh, as quickly as we possibly can. All right. Uh, I hope this was useful and I hope I covered everything that I promised to cover uh, in my email to you. I'm going to come over here and open up the questions pane and see how many questions we have pending. Now, please feel free to ask me questions now as I'm, I'm answering these questions. I can see them pop up. If I don't get to your question, I only see a couple here, one from Hector, one from Sue. Uh, so I'm gonna answer these easily. Uh, please feel free to email me or call me your questions after this webinar, I'm very happy to um, handle that. All right, so Hector asked the first question. He says, Greg, I've got a similar employee. If the employee worked only three weeks with a company and there is no similar employee, can the employee be paid $150 a week and let the judge determine? 
Is this in the employer's best interest? Yeah, so that's a challenge, Hector. I mean, you've got an employee who he was the only one. He only worked a couple of weeks. You went and canvassed the, the rest of the employment and you said, ah, uh, we, we don't know how much this person really would have earned. I mean, at this point, I think you've got to probably resort to some fundamental fairness and you'd say, well, when you hired him, uh, what was the expectation? What rate did you hire him at and for how many hours a week? And say, judge, look, he only worked three weeks. We, we really don't have enough wages to make this make sense. But our intention was to have him work 20 hours a week and we were going to pay him $30 an hour. So judge, you know, a $600 average, uh, average weekly wage is something that we could stipulate to. And then, you know, if, if that's impossible or the judge says, no, 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 I need a similar worker, you know, you could dredge one up from another location uh, or you can just let the judge determine it. I mean, really, you're trying to go for fairness. I, I always try for fairness. I don't try to game average weekly wage. I'm always trying to say, well, what, what really were the expectations of the parties? And it's tough, uh, particularly where the person's gotten injured on their first day or their second day or their third week. You don't really have a chance to know. They're still in their training period. Maybe they weren't even off of probation. They weren't even doing the job yet. You know, how much you would have paid them is a challenge to determine. But again, it's worth trying to be as clear as you can on that and talk to the location. All right, Sue asks a question, Greg, how do we handle labor market attachment when the employee is technically still employed despite and it says longer disability. I have several employers who will not terminate employees on workers' comp. All right, so the answer to that is that's just a, that's a legal argument to be made to the judge. And you just say, judge, uh, I got bad news for you. We don't have light duty in this location. Judge, they have to go out and look for a job within their restrictions. And I've heard this argument. The judge will go, but you haven't terminated them, so they still have a job with you. I'll say, no, I don't have a job for them, not until they're able to work full duty. So judge, you've got to instruct them to go and find a job within their restrictions. The judge is going to push back and, and they, because the easiest thing in the world is to say, well, you haven't fired them yet, so what's that? And our answer is, well, they're not, we're not paying them yet. There's no earnings to offer them. Uh, we can't accommodate them. So I would keep focusing on, I can't offer you accommodated work. You're less than totally disabled you have an obligation under the law to go out and look for work within your restrictions. And, and your current employment status with me really should not have any determination about of that. that. That really has to be your obligation under the law. Um, all right. Uh, Greg asked the question, hey, Greg, this is off topic, but are there some limitations and risks to accepting a claim without liability, uh, like limiting certain uh, C-8.1 defenses for medical bills, et cetera? All right, Greg, it is a little off topic, but I'm happy to answer this. In general, I try not to guide clients towards accepting cases without liability. Now, you can do that in New York. Case gets indexed against you. You've got your 25 days to file your controversy, and you've said, it's not enough time to perform an investigation. We're not even sure if this case is ours. We really, we don't know. Uh, maybe I'm going to accept this, Greg, without uh, prejudice and just see what happens. I'll have time to do my investigation. You're going to get stuck with the medical on that case while you're uh, pending your investigation. Um, and then, you know, your your idea would be, hey, I've got a year, because that's what the law says after you accept the case without prejudice. You have one year to interpose your defense and say, actually, we did the investigation. We gathered the witnesses. We looked at the facts. We watched the videotape. And it turns out this accident never happened. Um, you know, you can do that. Generally speaking, I tell my clients, I think it's a better endeavor to spend more time, effort, money, blood, and treasure early in the case, figuring out if you want to accept it or not, uh, because it's very difficult in my experience, once you've accepted a case without prejudice, to move it over to controverted status, uh, unless the claimant literally comes forward and goes, 
oh yeah, I was wrong. I didn't work there. I have nothing to do with that place. Uh, it's just a real challenge to get it um, reverted back to not my case or you know to assert defense of lack of jurisdiction or something like that later. Uh, so for practical reasons, I often tell clients, I don't believe in that. I, I would prefer you deny the case, dispute the case, file a pre-hearing conference statement, do all those things. And while you do your investigation, and we'll try to keep this case up in the air, you can always, in a controverted case at the first hearing, the pre-hearing conference, go and judge. Uh, it's been 45 days now, and now we had enough time to do our investigation. We did the investigation, and we're accepting the case now. The judge is always happy to say, okay, I see you withdrawing the controversy. They'll bring awards up to date, and then you're off the calendar and you're resolved. So my advice would always be, hey, uh, controvert instead of accept without prejudice. Very, very rare exceptions. All right. I'll look down, see if there's any more questions. I don't see any. Those are great questions. I love off-topic questions. It keeps it fresh, keeps it interesting. All right, thanks. Okay, next week, we have uh, this webinar series continues. Next week, I'm going to be talking about Jersey wage construction. That's on Monday, July 26th. On Monday, August 2nd, my partner, Tashia Razul, our construction team leader, is going to be talking about coordinating defense, and she's really going to be talking about GL defense and comp defense. Uh, coordinating multi-jurisdictional litigation using milestones. On Monday, August 9th, uh, Chris Major from our civil department is going to be talking about how Kelly Burns and Bissell credits will affect your rights to reimbursement and subrogation. Our next New York discussion is going to be August 16th, so I'll see you then, and we're going to be talking about the new medical treatment guidelines, so it should be a lot of fun. All right, everybody, thanks for coming. Thanks for sticking with us. Have a great weekend. Bye.